Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hey there, plant people. Thank you for joining me again today. I am so glad for you all. Um... It is just so hot and dry, and I really am glad to have people who understand what I'm going through. Um, you know, all, all of us garden people really understand how distressing it can be trying to keep plants alive outside in the garden this time of year in this awful, awful heat. It's been... Texas summer for a while now. The calendar has finally caught up. It's officially summer now for everyone all over the United States. Um, but you know, it's just been, it's been tough here lately and I'm, I'm thinking it, you're thinking it, if it's this hot now, what the hell is August going to be like? I mean, it's going to be a freaking hellscape. I mean, who knows? We may get lucky and it not be that bad. I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, I took off um, last week, and the family and I headed out of town. We went up to Northwest Arkansas for a visit, and it was just absolutely beautiful there. I went to school in Fayetteville at University of Arkansas, so I am quite fond of the town. Um I'm a little biased about it, but summertime in Fayetteville, Arkansas is the best. And last week was so great. Everything was so lush and emerald green, and there were just so many flowers in bloom. Um, the, the city and the university do an amazing job with their public spaces and parks and keeping everything so pretty with the landscaping. It's really, really lovely there. You know, it, it was warm, um, maybe even a little on the toasty side. I think, it, you know, it was in the 90s, 90, 95 degrees. Not, it was not hotter than 95 degrees. Um, so that was really pleasant compared to the temperatures we've been having here in Taylor and our part of central Texas. May was the warmest on record. We've also had a record for June with the most days over 100 degrees. It's too much. Too much too early. <laughs> anyway, um, when we left Taylor, um, yeah, it was definitely hot. Um, and, but my lawn was still green and looking all right. But when we got back a few days later, there was an obvious change because while we were gone, the grass started to get crispy. 
I am not a lawn person. I like them just fine. I don't get hung up about the grass and weeds or whatever. We aren't the manicured lawn type people. We don't spend a lot of effort on the lawn. You know, keep it mowed, sort of tidy, but that's it. Very minimal lawn care. So even though I don't really care that much about the grass, I still felt annoyed how quickly the grass has started to turn brown. I mean, we were gone for like less than a week and it just happened so quickly, it seemed. But we had a a nice trip and we saw lots of great plants. Okay, I don't know about the rest of my family if they were paying attention to them or not, but I saw lots of great plants. Favorite ones that grow here in Texas, but also, you know, ones that just don't grow here at least not with a whole lot of effort, but I took lots of pictures and I brought some new plants home with me. I picked up a handful of them at um, a cool little nursery that specializes in native Arkansas native plants there. Um, I picked up a native coneflower, uh, one that's a little unusual. Um, it should do well here in Texas. I also picked up some mountain mint. Um, it smells really nice. It's It's got a nice leaf. I like the way it looks. And um, a pink oak leaf hydrangea that is supposed to be a new heat tolerant variety. With the mint and the oak leaf hydrangea, those are kind of iffy for our climate there is a chance that they're not going to like it here in central Texas, but maybe there's a chance they might be fine. Especially if I pick the perfect spot and tend to them while they get established. Also, while I was visiting my daughter at her house, I collected a few plants that were there. Um, these are, were our old favorites of mine, um, because my parents have them at their house and they just pop up all over their yard and they're popping up in my daughter's yard. Now my daughter is, uh, living there just for the summer during the school year. She lives in the dorm and she really doesn't have a whole lot of stuff. So definitely she did not have a trowel or a shovel. So, um, I went kind of digging around. Uh, and I found an old spoon that she had. And so I used that to gently lift some wood violets from the path. I also found two types of wild ferns that were in her yard. So I carefully divided um, some of those. And I also pulled up some gorgeous velvety moss that was growing between the pavers and on um, a stone wall. Those plants are just so lovely, and I'm really sentimental about them. I've collected the same plants from my parents' house. Um, They live in Arkansas, too. But I was just never successful at keeping them alive here in Taylor. It's just too hot and dry. But I couldn't resist. I went ahead, dug some up, brought them to Taylor, and I have this big glass jar. So I put them in the jar and made a little terrarium and brought it inside. So I think that that might work. 
I'll find out soon enough, I suppose. But so far, so good. Terrariums are glass containers that are filled with soil and plants. And depending on the plants in them, most terrariums have a lid which keeps the humidity levels inside the vessels um, quite high. Terrariums are little ecosystems that allow you to grow plants that need maybe slightly more warmth and or more humidity. They are sort of like little greenhouses. Terrariums create a unique environment um, when they are sealed with a lid or some sort of cover. Glass containers with lids are called closed systems because they trap heat and moisture inside the container and that's what creates the little ecosystem that has like a little small scale water cycle the moisture from the soil and the plants evaporates thanks to the higher temperatures in the jar the water vapor will condense on the walls of the container and eventually it drips back down into the soil and keeping the container closed creates a constant water supply it's like a little recycling system Closed systems are great for tropical and moisture-loving plants like mosses, orchids, ferns, and air plants. These sealed containers are really self-sufficient. They keep recycling the moisture in the vessel. If you feel like there's too much moisture in your jar or you want to prevent mold or algae from forming, um, all you have to do is like take the lid off for a couple hours every week and let some of the water vapor escape. Closed systems should always have a sm uh, some amount of condensation on the walls of the jar as moisture goes through the water cycle. If your container doesn't have any condensation, your plants and your plants start to look wilty, then that's a pretty good sign that it's you need to add water to your terrarium. You don't really need much water to restore the moisture balance either. Just a few spritz from a spray bottle or a light drizzle of water down the side of the jar. Now you don't have to have a lid on your container or if you do, it doesn't have to be completely sealed. Um, these are called open systems, and open systems have access to fresh air. They are better suited for plants that don't like as much humidity or much soil moisture. Plants that are adapted to drier climates work really well in open system terrariums, the ones without any um, lids. They don't trap the humidity and the heat like closed systems do. Open terrariums work well for plants that need more direct sunlight um, because they're ventilated. Closed systems would trap too much heat if placed in direct sun, and that could potentially kill your plants. With all that water vapor and moisture in the jar, if they get too if it gets too hot, I think you would basically steam your plants to death. And that sounds pretty horrible, but really, 
Um, overwatering is the biggest problem with terrariums since there is no drainage. There's not a hole at the bottom of your jar um, that would allow excess water to escape. And too much water in the soil um, will cause root rot and your plants will suffer and die that way. So don't overwater your terrarium. Um, even though succulents are really popular plants, um, they don't do well in terrariums, either type. They don't do well in the open or the closed ones. And that's because um, they are really sensitive to root rot. They just don't do well in them um, because they they don't drain very well. So um, if you're considering a tr planting a terrarium, just save the succulents for something else. Setting up a terrarium is really easy. It just takes a little thought and um, some things to consider and then of course your supplies. Obviously you need a jar or some other container depending on you know what you're going to be planting inside of it. Um, you'll also need to decide if it needs to have a lid. Um, there's a lot of really really pretty apothecary type jars and some really nice kitchen canisters that could be potential terrariums. You don't have to go find a specific terrarium jar. If you don't want to, you can find an alternative. Um, they can be glass or plastic, but they do need to be clear. If they're not clear, um, any sort of like color or tint on the container could filter out color wavelengths that plants need for photosynthesis. Plants make their own food from carbon dioxide, water, and light using photosynthesis. So stick to clear jars and vessels. That way you're not blocking out any important color wavelengths. You probably wouldn't really be able to appreciate the beauty of your plants in your jar if you use like a green jar or a blue jar anyway. So clear is, is really best. Once you have your container, put an inch or so of gravel or pebbles in the bottom of your jar. Just have a nice even layer and then add a layer of potting soil on top of the gravel. The gravel layer in the bottom is going to allow space between the container and the soil. And this is going to allow any excess water to drain away. It's really important in a terrarium to have this drainage, drainage space because you don't want soggy soil or conditions that will cause root rot. The soil um, for your terrarium, it needs to be lightweight and well draining. Most bagged potting mixes will be fine to use. A general potting mix is perfect. You could also use um, a raised bed mix, just as long as you know it drains well. If you're using houseplants in your terrarium, you could get a mix that is specific for houseplants. There are different varieties, um, specialty mixes available. Just match the soil to the type of plant that you wanna grow in your terrarium. One of the advantages of buying um, potting mix instead of using like raised bed mix 
and definitely over using soil from your from your yard um, is that these bag mixes are heat processed and they have fewer pathogens. Warm, moist environments like a closed system terrarium is exactly the ideal temperature and moisture for um, mold growth and also um, algae growth. Algae buildup on the sides of your terrarium jar is unattractive, but it can also cause problems too because it can um, start to block out the light. But it's easy to fix. Algae can simply be wiped out. Um, but just know that it, it might not go away if those spores are in there. Some molds and fungi can be problematic in your terrarium ecosystem too. So what you can do to minimize those things, um, you know, use that bagged potting mix that has um, been heat treated. Now that said, with the terrarium I made, I really wasn't too concerned about potential pathogens in my soil mix. I just used a couple scoops of raised bed mix that I already had. Uh, I use it in my garden and I know it drains well. I did this because I didn't want to go buy any potting mix. I didn't need any. Um, because I knew that I dug those ferns and those violets out myself and they came with the soil that they were growing in. So there's already microbes in it. I'm not too worried about it. If they're, if they are bad microbes in there, they were going to be there if I planted them in a sterile potting mix. So I just went ahead and used what I had. I might be a little more cautious if I was planting expensive and rare plants in my terrarium, but these weren't. So I just used what I had. Once you have a nice layer of soil down, you know, two, two and a half inches of soil is, is good. Then you can tuck your plants down into the soil, making sure the roots are all covered. You know, arrange your plants so they aren't touching the glass. If your plant is um, bigger than you want, you can always um, divide it and put a smaller portion into your jar. And then you have an extra plant you can plant somewhere else or make another jar. If you want to, you can add some moss to the top of your soil or other decorative um, elements like colorful aquarium gravel or glass stones, um, sand, you could use regular sand, you could use colored sand. Decomposed granite is really pretty and it would add a little sparkle and a little bit of color to your container. Have a little fun, you can add things like small figurines or toys into your terrarium or you know, pretty rocks and shells that you might have. Really, anything that suits your style or suits your fancy, put it in your terrarium. Once your plants are in the jar and you have everything placed where you want it, the last step is to water it. You can just dribble some water down the side of the jar. You know, Do it slowly and watch the soil turn wet. Little by little, you don't want to add too much water. You can always add a little bit more, but 
once it's in there, you won't be able to remove it. Um, you'll have to leave your jar open until the excess evaporates. Or if you accidentally pour too much in there, you might have to start over. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn about all the great shows and music coming out of our station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plant Host Facebook page and like and share it with your gardening friends or head over to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Plant Host Podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes and please leave a review. It's really quick. You just click on the stars. Some platforms allow you to leave a few sentences about the show. It helps other people find the show and it lets folks know that Plow and Hose is a pretty good show. And if you've already left a review, thank you so much. I love hearing what, what you guys have to say and I really do appreciate the kind reviews. Okay, so back to terrariums. Terrariums act like little greenhouses. They collect heat and the inside of your terrarium will be warmer than the air around them, like in your house. They need diffused or indirect light so they can photosynthesize and make their own food. If there's too much condensation that's forming on the inside of your jar, then you can remove the lid for a couple hours or move the jar so it gets less light. Again, too much light is bad. A glass terrarium will turn into a magnifying glass when it's placed in direct sunlight or extremely bright light. This amplified light is gonna burn your plants. Also, not enough light um, will cause your plants to not thrive. Um, if they don't get enough light, they actually might not even survive. So you can move your plant uh, closer to a window or maybe set up a grow light nearby if um, they don't get enough light. Just make sure that it's not streaming right into your terrarium and that it's indirect. Now, this is not going to be a problem for us uh, right now in the middle of the summer, but once it gets cold and we turn the heaters on, just make sure your terrarium is not too close to the heat vent because it's going to amplify the heat inside your terrarium and you'll overheat your terrarium and cook your plants. So don't do that. Don't accidentally cook your plants. Now, if you find the perfect spot for your terrarium and the moisture level is just perfect and you have happy, healthy plants, they're going to grow. And sometimes they grow a bit too much and they outgrow the container or end up crowding out the other plants in the jar. You know, you can trim your plants so they stay nice and tidy and they don't look overgrown. Um, 
or you could just pull it out and replace it with something smaller. Some people um, will take their plants out and then trim the roots. That way they can help keep their plants um, stay small and not have to uh, trim them up like they would if they just let them grow. Also, um, to keep them from getting leggy, you don't want to fertilize them. Terrarium plants can make their own food, so they usually don't need fertilizer. Fertilizer, especially one that is high in nitrogen, is going to make the upper parts of your plant grow, and they will outgrow your container, or they'll crowd out the other plants really quickly. So avoid fertilizing them. When selecting plants for your terrarium, make sure they have the same light and moisture requirements. If they are too different, um, one of the plants is going to thrive and the other one won't because they don't like the same growing conditions. If you have, if you do end up with a plant that fails to thrive or it just outright dies, just go ahead and remove it as soon as possible because if it has a disease, it's going to um, infect your other plants. So just grab a spoon, dig it out, you know, be careful and don't disturb the roots of the other plants. Just kind of gently uh, remove the dead plant and you can replace it with something else later, something that is maybe more compatible and definitely healthy. If you do start to see that algae forming on the sides of your jar, or maybe you get water spots, you can clean the inside of your jar. Um, unless you already have like a mini sponge on a long skinny stick, you're probably gonna have to like invent a tool to wipe down the sides of your jar. The easiest thing that you can make um, is probably like just wrapping a folded paper towel on one end of a chopstick and just secure that with a rubber band or a twist tie or maybe tie it up with a bit of string. And then you can use that to wipe any algae or water spots away. And it's cheap, it's easy, and reusable. Chopsticks are great, and you can use them in you know for your terrarium care. Um, you can use them to like move leaves around or you can poke the soil to st and straighten um, your plants up. You know, other tools that you might uh, want to keep on hand, um, long tweezers or, you know, small tongs that you can use to pick up debris like leaves. You could use cuticle scissors or suture scissors um, to help you reach and trim dead parts off your, your plants. Now, if you break your lid accidentally, or maybe you never had one to begin with, um, just improvise. You can use like a plate or something else to cover the top. If you have like a cool bottle that you want to use, um, you might be able to use a regular like drinking glass um, to cover the opening. Just turn it upside down and um, cover that hole. Just something to block the opening so you can maintain extra humidity in your jar or bottle. Terrariums are really easy to make and I 
think that they can be really interesting and super fun, especially find some cool things to add to your container to make it special. While we were in Fayetteville, Arkansas a couple of weeks ago, I went to this really great used bookstore. It's called Dixon Street Books. It's an incredible place. You can spend hours and hours there. The place is just room after room, floor to ceiling, stacks and stacks of books all over the place. It's so great. It's got that old book smell and there is just so much to look at. Um, I definitely would not want to be there if there was a fire, but um, anyway, I still love that store. You know, every time that I go there, I just never know what I'm going to find. And, you know, this time I lucked out and I found a few books that I wanted to buy. Um, some books in a series that I didn't have, so I got those and I picked up a couple other um, books that looked pretty interesting. But the one that I am most excited about is this thin little book on hydroponics. And for being such a small book, it's got a super long title. It's called The Hydroponic Garden Secret, How to Grow More Food Faster All Year Long. Um, it's a publication of a company called Alternative Daily. Um, they have a website, alternativedaily.com. Um, and you can probably go find a copy there on the website. But anyway, this little book is like 112 pages long. And it's got some really nice illustrations and includes instructions for how to put, put together several different types of hydroponic systems. Now, I really didn't know that much about hydroponics. Um, I mean, I knew, I know the basics. I knew the basics like it's growing crops in water and you have to add nutrients because there's no soil or compost. And I knew that you can grow a lot of food in a small space because you can set them up, uh, vertically. You can do it that way. Um, and if you have a hydroponic setup inside with grow lights, you can grow a lot of food all year long. And when you throw in some climate and temperature control, you can grow things like lettuces and strawberries any time of the year. So I've always been really interested in trying hydroponics, um, really, really for a long time. But when I would go to try to learn more about hydroponics, I just kind of felt overwhelmed. I felt like the information available was just overly complicated and really seemed expensive for a setup. Um, I just never found um, you know, a book on hydroponics that appealed to me the way that this little book does. And, you know, just trying to learn about hydroponics from the internet was just way too time consuming because there is no way to Google hydroponics without ending up in the middle of discussion on a forum about growing pot. It's absolutely impossible to do. 
So, you know, there's six degrees of separation between anyone and Kevin Bacon. Well, that's nothing because there are three degrees of separation between growing strawberries and growing pot. And there is just far, far more information on the internet about growing hydroponic pot than there is growing hydroponic strawberries. But I find it overwhelming and annoying. I don't have time to filter through all the information and try to figure out if the same techniques can be used for strawberries. But I gotta say, the marijuana growers have done a lot for growing indoor for for indoor gardening um and because of this they have made the cost of lights in hydroponic systems come way way down in the last 20 years and it's so much more affordable for plant people wanting to grow hydroponically and those grower people they are extremely knowledgeable about growing things indoors. And they're generally very generous, enthusiastic about sharing information with others. But I gotta warn you, you might not wanna use your mom's computer to search hydroponics because you're gonna end up on some pot pages. I don't think my mom would appreciate that. Maybe your mom would, whatever. Admittedly, I did not know a whole lot about the hydroponic gardening, but for sure, I knew nothing about the history of it. Honestly, I assumed that it was like a new concept in gardening. Everything I have come across about hydroponics has made it seem like really sciencey and futuristic. I mean, growing food without soil. I mean, that just sounds and seems so innovative and so modern. And, you know, and then plus the whole marijuana association, I kind of sort of just believe that it was like a pretty new thing, like less than a hundred years old. I mean, like a new agricultural concept, you know, maybe, maybe they came up with it like in the fifties or sixties, I guess that's what I was thinking, but no, it's not because versions of hydroponics actually go back to ancient times and the Aztecs, um, had floating gardens and they grew food on rafts in the middle of lakes and indoor hydroponics date back at least to 1699 323 years ago i don't know it's it's amazing to me i had no i had no idea i had no idea that it was ancient. Up until the 1930s, soilless growing was called water culture, not agriculture, water culture. But then the University of California in Berkeley started to really study research and promote it. And they wanted to distinguish it from agriculture. Um, Apparently, they didn't want to just call it water agriculture. And aquaculture was already taken. 
Um, that's the study of aquatic organisms. So they had to come up with a new term or they decided to come up with a new term and they came up with hydroponics. And it's just a blend of two Greek words, hydro for water and panos for work. So water work. It's a little weird, but whatever. The researchers at UC Berkeley did such an amazing job back in the 30s that they were able to perfect the foundation for hydroponics that we know today, a real solid hydroponic program that produces higher yields with a whole lot less water, like two thirds less water than traditional irrigation with agriculture growing in soil. Now, hydroponics continued to improve, and by the early 40s, researchers had figured out how to use gravel as a growing medium, which allows the roots to cling onto something. Um, and then growers could alternate between flooding the roots and then allowing them to drain. And this was just the perfect balance because the plants received um, the maximum amount of liquid nutrients and then also exposure to some air on those roots. This gravel method actually ended up being a really, really important part of World War II. The military set up hydroponic island farms um, in the Atlantic and then also the, the Pacific so that they could grow fresh foods. These islands were completely barren and unsuitable for growing food in the ground. But with the gravel method, they were able to grow millions and millions of tons of fresh produce, crazy amounts. And what they would do is they, like the aircraft would land on the island, they would stop, they would refuel, and then pick up fresh vegetables and take them uh, wherever they needed to go. And even after the war, the U.S. Army continues to grow food hydroponically, and it actually has a branch, a hydroponic branch of the army. And I think that is so cool. And you know, if I had known about this when I was younger, I might have actually considered joining the army just so I could be a lettuce grower. I mean, I totally could have gotten behind that. And that would have been a great army job for me. Oh, well, I am way too old for the army now. Um, so I'm just going to have to teach myself hydroponics. And I'm going to do that on my next show because it's really, really fascinating to me. And I want to share all what I learn. All right. Um, it, yeah, I got to wrap up the show now. Um, a quick reminder, I do have a column that appears in two local newspapers, the Taylor Press and the Elgin Courier. 
my column runs in the Taylor Press every other Saturday, and in the Elgin Courier, it runs every other Wednesday. So you can pick up print copies, or you can find it online. Also, really quickly, I wanted to mention today is Plow and Ho's second anniversary. That's right, I've been doing the show for exactly two years now. And this episode is the 95th show. So I'm coming up on the 100th episode and I'm really excited about that. Uh, I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet, um, but I, I really think I need to do something special. So stay tuned. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas.